golden age of Islam. Today we're going to talk about a subject that is extremely relevant and one that is still very misunderstood. In fact, some of the more inflammatory comments you hear about Islam today come from this very misunderstanding. And I'm talking here about what the Prophet Muhammad did or did not say. We can hear some commentators on the news citing supposedly confirmed reports that the prophet said some pretty disturbing things. And then you hear other people reject those very reports. Well, if you remember back when we discussed the Quran, we said that it was a remarkable achievement, the exact same version of the Quran, down to individual sounds, was preserved for Muslims around the world, and everyone has the exact same version. Well, you might think that would be the end of any controversy. But the next source of Islamic teachings, of Islamic laws, had no such consensus. And you can't explain the disagreements going on within Islam today and about Islam today without addressing the very important subject of the Hadith. That is, the recorded sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. And that is today's topic, so you'll want to hear it. And stay with us. Okay, welcome back. If you remember back to our very first episode, we discussed how the early Muslims wanted to avoid the controversies that they saw tearing the early Christian church apart. You remember those controversies that led to countless schisms within the Christian churches and to three competing versions of the Bible. Each one is used today by hundreds of millions, different versions that have up to seven different books in them. Well, the Quran allowed for none of those problems. As we said, it was recorded word for word in Arabic with such precision that new symbols had to be invented, not just for the letters and sounds, but even the pauses in between words and the intonations of words. Today, one of the great achievements of history is that the Quran used in Indonesia or India is the exact same text as the one used in Morocco or California or really anywhere else. Well, you would think that might be the end of all the controversy. But the Quran, however, doesn't cover everything. And in fact, there are no real books of laws or commands in the Quran like you find in the Old Testament. Now, if you've ever tried to do one of those read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year programs, you remember the countless laws that you encounter in the books of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and so on. They're very, very specific. Now, Actually, they're not countless. The Jewish tradition counts them as 613 laws in those books. But as we also know, by the time of Jesus, those 613 had been expanded into thousands of sub-laws. For example, we know that the Ten Commandments prohibit working on the Sabbath. Well, the rabbinical law identified 39 different types of work that could be done. And those were further divided into hundreds of examples. Like, for example, spitting on the ground was considered work. Walking 2,000 cubits or less was not work, but walking over 2,000 was, and so on. So, with no disrespect to my Jewish friends out there, as large as the rabbinical law was, 
Islamic law was and is orders of magnitude larger in volume. As I've said before, they were talking about regulating a huge empire. And so you can imagine how many different things they had to regulate. Well, if you look at the Quran, you'll find very few actual laws. And those deal with specific subjects. One of the main ones is inheritance. Now, as we said, there are thousands of laws within Islamic law. So how did they get those? Well, that's where we enter today's subject, the Hadith. Okay. Hadith in Arabic means a saying or a report or a speech. And in this case, it refers to the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. Well, these were very important even early on. If you remember back in episode 3, we talked about the first caliphs, Abu Bakr and Omar, and they made it clear that they ruled by following the example of the Prophet, which is known as the Sunnah. Now, this is when the conflict with the followers of Ali, eventually to be known as the Shia, began. If you remember, those people established the legitimacy of their leaders by the line of descent of Ali, by the charismatic special leadership that Ali and his descendants would have. So to establish their legitimacy against this proto-Shia challenge, these early leaders emphasized their adherence to the Sunnah, and thus they became known as Sunnis. So that means that the Sunnah was very important to them. But this, of course, raises the question of how did they know what the Sunnah of the Prophet was? Well, people like Abu Bakr and Omar, who had been companions of the Prophet, they could claim to know what the Prophet did and said from their own experience. If you remember Abu Bakr, his biggest claim to lead was that he was the Prophet's closest companion. And within that small leadership circle, there was a lot of direct expertise. So if a question came up about what would the Prophet have done in this situation, very possibly someone could stand up and say, well, I remember an example of when he said or did such and such. And of course, this is an oral culture that we're talking about this at this point. All of their history was passed down orally. So the idea of sharing these reports orally of what the prophet said, this is something that was quite natural. Things change very quickly. Now, if you remember the episode about the conquest, he said that the Muslim state went to become the largest empire in the world within a few generations. But even 29 years after the Prophet died, we had a new caliphate, the Umayyads, which was led by the Umayyad family in Syria, who really the, the leaders had very minor contact with the Prophet. So that might not have been such an issue for them if their legitimacy was accepted. But as we've said, they were challenged greatly by the Shiites as being not worthy and not legitimate leaders. So they had to base their leadership again on adherence to the Prophet Sunnah. But for the most part, they weren't direct witnesses to it. So pretty much anything the first Umayyad Caliph Muawiyah did, his enemies were going to say that it was wrong and not what the Prophet would have done. So it's at this point that the idea of collection and documentation of these Hadith reports becomes a major effort in the Umayyad Caliphate. One scholar describes the Hadith as the bricks and the Sunnah as being the building that is made out of these bricks. And that gives you an idea of how they relate. But even this is a little bit misleading because in any building, we can all agree on what are the bricks in the building. You don't have a building where 90% of the bricks in it are disputed. And that's the situation we have here with the Hadith. 
When it comes to the sayings of the Prophet, which hadith are accepted, which ones are considered authentic, there is no consensus. Just to give you one example, the first great recorder of hadith during his lifetime identified over 600,000 individual hadith, that is 600,000 individual sayings that were in circulation. And by circulation that meant that somebody out there was claiming each one of these as legitimate. Based on his analysis, he accepted just over 7,000 out of 600,000. That's slightly more than 1%. Now today, the science of examining and judging hadith, weighing their authenticity, and classifying them is one of the largest fields in Islamic studies. There are entire faculties, entire colleges dedicated to this study. People get doctorates in it. The system of classifying hadith is extremely complex. There are 19 degrees of certainty out there and many different classifications into which an individual hadith can fall. Now remember that sounds very uh, nuanced and complicated, but what all these classifications are trying to tell us is the likelihood that the Prophet did or did not say this particular thing. I mean the reality is for every one of these hadith there's two possibilities. He said it or he didn't say it. And we have this incredibly nuanced system that is basically telling us what the likelihood of that is. And that's something you have to bear in mind throughout everything we're about to discuss. It's something that's often lost. So at this point you're probably asking the question, how could the early Muslim community do so well at preserving the Quran but not the Hadith when these become the two main sources of Islamic teaching and Islamic law? Well, it's not because they were lazy or they didn't think of it. There were some strong factors that argued against doing such a thing at the time. Now, we do know that some hadith were actually written down during the Prophet's life. Uthman, who was the third caliph, he ordered the compilation of the Quran, but he is also said to have issued a directive to record and collect the hadith after that. Well, if you remember from the story of the Rashidun, what happened to Uthman, he was assassinated. So that project was never completed. And then after his death, we had the entire controversy with Ali and the Sunni-Shia split. And so that put that on hold for quite a while. Well, the problem was, unlike the Quran, we never got a definitive collection of Hadith. When the Prophet received the revelation from God, and that took place over 23 years, he would recite the words nightly, and then others, the early followers, would come and recite it with him, because hey, this was the word of God. And they continued this night after night, and these groups would get larger and larger. And these people eventually memorized the verses, and they became what we call Hafiz. Hafiz is someone who has memorized the Quran, even today. Uh, a large number of Muslims are Hafiz. They didn't just do this to show how smart they were. This was part of remembering this oral recitation. In fact, the reason that Uthman, the third caliph, ordered the recording of the Quran is that so many of the Hafiz had died in the early wars. Okay, so the idea is when it comes to the Quran, we have a group of people who agreed on exactly what the revelation was. I mean, they recited it, and so they knew. So if someone showed up later and said, hey, I got a part of the Quran that no one else knows about, they would know he would be a fake. 
problem with the Hadith is that there was no definite recordings. It wasn't that people weren't remembering what the Prophet said. Uh, as we said, there were 600,000 of these identified, so people were remembering all kinds of stuff. The problem was that no one was making a definitive decision to say, okay, this one is legitimate and this one isn't, until it was too late. Well, why is that? Remember, by the end of the Prophet's life, uh, even before the first caliphs, this was a pretty big state. It pretty much encompassed all of the Arabian Peninsula, just south of uh, Syria and Iraq. And he had contacts with thousands of people. He was the leader of the community, political leader, military leader. He was a famous negotiator. We've talked about, about the extensive relations he had with other communities. So the number of people out there who may have heard the prophet say something during his lifetime was huge, and they were spread out at least throughout the Arabian Peninsula. Well, some of these people died, and then within a few generations, we have reports passed on from someone who heard from someone else who maybe heard from a third person. And of course, you all remember the game you used to play in school and telephone. You'd whisper in somebody's ear, and then by the time it made it around the circle, something completely different came out. Well, that's sort of a situation we have here. Now, this leads to another of the major challenges with hadith. The most common form of a hadith today has two parts. There's the matin, which is the body. Uh, matin means like substance. That's the actual narrative. The prophet said so-and-so. He said, do this, don't do that. The second part, and this is where the, the controversy really comes in, is what's called the isnad. A senad is something that supports something else. But the isnad here refers to the chain of witnesses. So if we have a report, where did we get this from? So, uh, for example, in an, an actual isnad, for example, Yahya ibn Bukair narrated to us from Al-Layth, from Uqail, from Ibn Shuhba, from Urwa, from Aisha. And Aisha is the, the wife of the Prophet, so she would be the witness who actually heard this. Well, this is one of the most important elements of Hadith science, is evaluating this. How strong is this isnad? For example, were, were Alayth and Uqail even alive at the same time? Would they ever have met? How likely was that? And then evaluating the reliability of the people within the chain. How trustworthy were they? The problem really is that although some sayings were recorded during the early years of Islam, they were not recorded in this form. They were passed on, but without the chain of witnesses, that was something that was constructed later. It takes about a hundred years before an agreeable form of documentation involves, and that is by citing the chain of witnesses. By that time, the, the direct witnesses are dead, the second witnesses are dead, and we're several generations on. So by the time when al-Bukhari, who is the most famous collector of hadith, makes his collection, and that's about 200 years after the prophet's death, he had uncovered some prolific forgers of hadith, not just people who got it wrong, but people who had single-handedly fabricated hundreds of these. And one of the things that one scholar has noticed is that a fabricated hadith is going to have a very good isnad. If, if I'm going to make something up, I'm going to cite people that everybody trusts. And remember, of course, they don't have any sort of forensic evidence. They have no recordings. What it is is looking at a story that is passed on orally and judging how likely is this. So you can kind of see how things would get out of control.
message of Islam is all about the oneness of God, unity, tawheed, meaning there are no partners to God. It means, and they were very critical of what they saw going on in the Christian world. So it was not only the idols and the multiple gods that the pagans had, but in the Christian world, there was praying to saints. There were icons of saints praying to the Virgin Mary. There was the idea that priests could forgive you of your sins, of local holy men, who particularly in the Eastern tradition became very, very popular. And of course, the most controversial uh, in the eyes of Islam was the treatment of Christ, the idea of the Trinity, that God was in three persons. To them was strictly polytheism. With this going on, it would have seemed strange to be going out and writing down the words of the Prophet Muhammad, thus saith Muhammad, when the message of Prophet Muhammad is passing on the word of God. I mean, for example, the first recorded speech of Abu Bakr, the first caliph, as soon as he assumed the position of leadership, he is said to have announced, whoever among you worship Muhammad, let him know that Muhammad is dead. And whoever among you worship Allah, worship God, let him know that God is living and God never dies. While people would take the teachings of the prophet seriously, the idea of making a definitive recording, making a book, and then distributing that book to everyone and elevating that book would have really gone against the general nature of what Islam was preaching. And this, by the way, leads to one of the biggest misunderstandings about not only what the, the Prophet said, but about Islamic scriptures as a whole. Now, you can often hear statements in the popular media, and definitely on the internet, they say that the Quran says this or that, or the Prophet said this and that. And some of these statements are really scary, in particular when people talking about violence, about terrorism and jihad. Well, in the Quran, it says so-and-so, and you read this, and you say, wow, that's really scary. Now, one of the reasons that there are so many incorrect statements, so many supposed verses being cited that turn out that they're not in the Quran, is because a lot of the people who are writing know very little about the Quran, and they certainly know much less about the Hadith. So when someone cites a Hadith saying, the Prophet said so-and-so, the assumption among a lot of people, particularly a lot of Western, is, well, the, the Prophet may have said this. But remember what we said, over 90%, close to 99% of the hadith that were in circulation, meaning someone was claiming them to be true, were rejected by what became the mainstream Sunni scholars. But everyone's claiming each one of those, somebody out there. So that means that a hadith that is cited by an extremist group, by ISIS or Osama bin Laden, may well be one that is rejected by the vast majority of Muslims, but they still cite it and say, well, the prophet said this. Well, that gets reported in the West, and then some writers who are critical of Islam will assume, okay, yeah, it must be true. I guess the prophet did really say that, and they will report it as if he did. Now, 
just as a rule of thumb, any hadith that is cited by a legitimate authority, by someone who actually knows what they're dealing with, they're going to tell you what type of hadith it is, what strength it is. This is a, a Hassan. This is a, a weak hadith. They're going to tell you what sort of isnad it has. And they'll probably tell you, they should say, which of the major collections it came from. So they could say that uh, the Prophet Muhammad said, and they'll give the citation. This came from Sahih al-Bukhari. Uh, it's a strong hadith with multiple reports. If you don't find any of that, if the person just says, well, the prophet said this, they are probably just repeating something that they have seen or read and don't really know where it came from. Now, worse than that, many people in the West know very little about the Quran itself. And so the assumption is that the Quran must be the same kind of book as the Bible. Now, as we discussed in our first episode, it's absolutely not. For instance, in the Bible, we have books written by different authors, like the book of Ephesians or Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John, and so on. In the Old Testament, we have speeches from Samuel, from David. I mean, David has a whole book of Psalms. There is a whole book of the Wisdom of Solomon, and so forth. So there are a lot of different writers featured in the Bible. So a common misperception is, well, the Quran must be the writings of Muhammad. Now, as we said, it's not that. And that is something that the Muslims wanted to make clear, that the whole thing is recorded in the second person. It's the words of God spoken to the prophet Muhammad. So some folks, though, who don't know that, they'll read a report and says the prophet said so-and-so, and they'll say, well, well, it must have come from the Quran, and so they'll repeat that as, well, the Quran says so-and-so. And those sorts of statements are all over the Internet, uh, written by so-called experts who warn about the coming apocalypse. So here again, a, a good rule of thumb is that any reliable citation of the Quran is going to cite the surah and the verse after it. The surah is like the book and then the verse number. So it'll say, uh, the Quran 2.15 or 3.8 or something like that. If it doesn't have that, I mean, no one who is familiar with the Quran would make a citation without putting that in there. And so these are just examples of why we have to be careful consumers of what we read. Okay, so far we've talked in general about what the Hadith are and the need to collect them. Now we want to look at the actual history of this process and how it affected the history of Islam and the Islamic civilization. Well, the intent of Islam was unity, but even under the first caliphs, disputes were already breaking out. And we've talked a lot about these, particularly the dispute between the Shia and the Sunni. In these disputes, both sides were backed up with statements by the Prophet, or what they believed to be the directions of the Prophet. And we already saw in that episode on the Sunni and Shia how these reports were already in conflict. Well, by the time the Umayyads seized power, the need for clarification of Hadith was urgent. In the first place, because the Sunnis, which is what the Umayyads really represented, claimed to be following the Sunnah of Muhammad. And in fact, they claimed to be best suited to do this. So therefore, obviously, they had to know it, and to do that, they had to codify it. 
But second, and probably more practically, by the time the Umayyad Caliphate stretched from Spain to Iran, they needed a huge and complex legal system. So they had already deputized hundreds of scribes and jurists to draft laws based on the Sunnah. Now, on the other side, their main opposition, the Shia, they had already started collecting thousands of hadith of their own to back up their own legitimacy. So in this early period, which is essentially the century of Umayyad rule, a number of hadith collections are mentioned, but the actual number that may have been produced uh, could well have been in the hundreds, none of which survive today. But I want to also stress that the standard format of a hadith and classifying hadith had not come about during this point. So these collections were trying to judge these based on their own standards and their own classifications. Well, the real mission of producing definitive hadith collections the way we know them today begins with the Abbasid Caliphate. And this is not a surprise because we talked about how the Abbasids had this desire to establish their legitimacy in contrast with the Umayyads. And the key figure in really defining, branding the Abbasids was the second Caliph, and that was Abu Jafar al-Mansur the one who established the city of Baghdad as the really the center of the world, which was to attest to the authority and the permanence of the Abbasids. So accordingly, when it came to Hadith, al-Mansur ordered the creation of an authoritative collection of Hadith to be used for the Abbasid Caliphate. And he tasked a very qualified person, Malik ibn Anas, who was a leading scholar of the day and who would later be known as one of the founder of one of the four main schools of Sunni law, which is something we'll talk about in the future. But the point is, he was not just a collector of hadith, he's really an expert and a founder of Islamic law, and these two things went together. So Imam Malik, as he's better known to us, was a noted expert on the hadith, and he is said to have personally memorized a 100,000 of these hadith. Now that's quite a bit. Now, the Caliph's command was that this collection of hadith should be binding for all Muslims. Now, it's easy to forget uh, because of what happened later on, but the Abbasid revolution had the support of the Shia. It had the support of the disaffected groups. So at least initially, the idea was that there was going to be this grand reconciliation, that uh, all Islam was coming back together, and so we wanted one body of laws, and of course we wanted one definitive hadith collection that could be used as the source. Well, Imam Malik at first refused this task because, as we're going to see, there's so much controversy of what is a legitimate hadith and what is not. You could see why he wouldn't want to do that. But, of course, one didn't defy al-Mansur for long. I mean, he was the most powerful guy in the world at the time. So it took about 20 years to compile the book that would later be known as al-Muwatta. And this word means agreed upon. Now, according to Malik, the reason it's called this is because he submitted his reports to 70 scholars of Medina. These are leading scholars of the day, and they agreed upon them. So the ones that are included in his collection are the ones that all these scholars, the top scholars of the day, agreed were legitimate. Now, just to give you an idea of the scale, of the 100,000 hadith that Malik knew, he selected only 1,720 for inclusion. So the question is, how come he knew so many of these? 
Well, Malik's grandfather was a close companion of the Caliph Umar, who, of course, is one of the closest companions of the Prophet. So that is one of the major sources that he got. And in fact, uh, the line of transmitters, the Isnad that goes from Umar to his son, to Malik himself is known in Hadith science as the golden chain because it's considered the the best of really all possible isnads. But out of the 1700 in this collection, only 80 of those Hadith are of that type. So the rest, where Malik got these, is he was, a like all the great Hadith collectors, he spent much of his life studying these. And it's with Malik we get one of the early classification systems, part of which are still in use today. Uh, so Malik divided his hadith into four categories, and these are all based on the isnad, or the type of transmission. Now, we're going to mention them here just to give you an idea of the complexity of hadith science. Now, before we do that, though, we have to mention two important groups of people upon which these classifications are made. The first are the sahaba. Uh, which is the plural of sahib, which means a companion. And the sahaba means the companions of the prophet. These were people who were alive at the time of the prophet, who knew him, traveled with him. The second group is the tabe'un, and taba means to follow. This is essentially, it, they're called the successors in English, but we're talking about the second generation. These were the people who were not direct companions of the prophet, but were, in, in many cases, they were companions of the companions. Now, to be a taba, you had to personally know at least one sahib. So the sahaba and the tabi'un, they played a key role in hadith. They're some of the key witnesses and the key transmitters. And so in order to study hadith, you have to know a lot about the lives of these people because their reliability is important, but also whom did they have contact with in their lives? What did they teach? Where did they travel? Is it possible that this tabe'e could have passed on a report to someone he has claimed to have done so? Okay, so that brings us to the four categories that Malik used, and we'll mention these just briefly. Uh, 600, about a third of his hadith are marfu. And marfu'a means they are traced directly to the prophet himself. So an example would be a report saying coming from Malik, from the son of Umar, from Umar, and then Umar reports something that he was told directly by the prophet. So we have the words of the prophet. About the same number, around another 600, are malkuf, from waqaf, or to stop. This means the isnad only goes as far as one of the companions. So uh, an example would be, let's say we have a hadith that we can trace all the way to Umar, the, the companion of the prophet and the second caliph, but he doesn't actually report the words of the prophet. It would be something like saying, if Umar said, when we were with the prophet, we were not allowed to do such and such, or we always did such and such. So. While we don't have the actual words of the prophet, we can pretty much assume that the prophet said it's okay to do this or it's not okay to do that. Now, the next group, the maktu, which comes from qata'a, which means to cut. Actually, there are exactly 285 of these. This means that the isnad only goes up to the words of one of the successors. Remember, this is the next generation, the tabi'un. 
Okay, and then there are 200 of which, which are called Mursal. And this is somewhat a, a difficult classification to explain. Basically, the easiest way to define this is the chain stops at a successor, uh, one of the Taba'in, someone who did not have direct contact in their lifetime with the Prophet Muhammad, but who is claiming to report the actual words of the prophet. So since a successor, by definition, couldn't have met Muhammad, that means the assumption is there's a sahib in between, although the sahib is not mentioned. And so Malik considers these hadith to be acceptable, even though there's a break in the chain of narrators. And the reason is because he considers all the Sahaba, by virtue of who they are, to be trustworthy. So even if we don't know which Sahab passed this on, we can assume that it's legitimate. Uh, these are four different categories, and you can see how detailed they're getting in these. Now, nothing actually says that these Isnads are correct. These are just reports. But it's important to notice that out of the 1700 hadith, that's all that's accepted out of a hundred thousand. And remember, again, I, I keep beating on this, but that meant that all 100,000 are being claimed, are being used by somebody. Okay, so that was a Malik. His uh, collection is really the oldest one that still exists. The greatest name in Hadith collection is one you hear a lot is Muhammad al-Bukhari. And as his name implies, uh, he is from the city of Bukhara in present-day Uzbekistan. And his collection is considered the first of the six main collections of the Sunnis. Now, al-Bukhari seems to have spent most of his life, from a very young age, collecting and evaluating Hadith. Uh, the rest of his works, his other great books, are related to this. For example, he writes detailed biographies of the transmitters, the witnesses, the people who are in this isnad, so, which, of course, becomes another big part of Hadith science. If you're going to judge the strength of a Hadith, you really have to know a lot about the transmitters. Bukhari is the one who collected 600,000 hadith. This meant that he traveled amongst the Islamic empire and talked to people who reported these specific hadiths and had a direct isnad. Okay, so when you think about it, I mean, today we, we quote a lot of people. We're talking about reports where the person not only says the Prophet Muhammad said this, but they can tell you exactly how it got from Muhammad to this person, say, in Morocco or Uzbekistan, who is reporting it. Now, the significant thing is he accepts only 7,275 in his famous work, Sahih al-Bukhari, which is considered the most authoritative hadith collection in amongst the Sunnis. Now, the word Sahih, uh, as any beginning Arabic student knows, they like to hear this word. Sahih means correct, means right. So this means that all of the hadith in his collection are sahih, which is the highest category, which means they're authoritative, they're legitimate, they're correct. How we get this criteria differs. Different scholars use different criteria to 
decree something as being sahih. Uh, Al-Bukhari used five different means of judgment, and of course he breaks these down into subcategories, so it's it's rather complex. Uh, but he is the first to produce a collection that is exclusively sahih hadith. So if someone quotes this came from al-Bukhari, then it's assumed to be correct. But again, we have to look at the fact that his acceptance rate is only a little bit over 1%. And this is typical for most of the Hadith collections. In fact, some of them accept a lot less than he did. If Bukhari wrote a collection that was nothing but Sahih, how did he classify the rest of them, the ones that didn't make it into his collection? Well, there are two main categories, and they're still used today. The first is Hassan, which means good. Now, this type of Hadith... Obviously, good is not as strong as correct. It has a weakness in one of its narrators for some, maybe the reliability or even the possibility that this narrator could have reported this. So Hassan Hadith are still relatively strong, but in Islamic law, they can be used generally as supporting evidence. So meaning if you have a, a strong Hadith, a Sahih, you can use Hassan to back it up but you generally don't use it by itself. The last category, of course, is da'if. Da'if means weak, and as you would expect, anything that's in the da'if category, that's not very good. Now, there are numerous types of weaknesses that can render something da'if, such as a break in the line of transmitters, a weak transmitter, contradictions with other reports. So, for example, we may have a break where we don't know how it got from this person to that person or a weak transmitter, meaning it's, we don't know a lot about this person. It's, this is probably one of the biggest sources of confusion, uh, particularly amongst non-experts, among Westerners. And for example, I've mentioned that a lot of da'if hadith are cited, particularly by extremists, by fringe groups, and these get reported in the Western media, or at least on social media, as being correct. For example, one of the favorites out there that is cited a lot is a uh, supposed saying that the prophet promised 72 virgins in heaven to every martyr for the cause of jihad. And we hear this cited as if it's the truth, and then claims are made about Islam based on this. This comes from one weak hadith that was reported. It's only included in one second-rank collection. It's not in one of the major six, but even that collector ranks it as weak. Uh, but it's repeated in the media as if the prophet actually said this. I mean, it gets quoted far more than uh, other strong hadith. And some even claim that it's in the Quran. That, that is not. So that's, that's one that's out there. Another controversial example within the, the Muslim world is this concept of the Mahdi, which you may have heard of this. Uh, the Mahdi is essentially a, really a messianic figure who is said to return at the end of time. When we hit the end times, he will return and lead an uprising of Muslims. If this sounds a lot like the second coming of Christ from Revelations, um, there are definite parallels to this. Now, the fact is, none of this is in the Quran, but this is based on 
some hadith, more than one, but most of which are classified as being weak, this Mahdi concept. But even though it's based on weak hadith, it has had a big impact historically. There have been several armed rebellions by self-proclaimed Mahdis. The most famous one was the Mahdi Revolution in Sudan in 1885, uh, which led to a several-year war with the British, led to the, the British occupation of Sudan and division of Sudan and Egypt, and of course led to the, the death of the, the famous British general Chinese Gordon. But this again is being based off of weak hadith. So if it sounds like at this point we're seeing Islam having some of the same sort of schisms and divisions as Christianity, uh, you're right in terms of history. But it is important to point out that the nature of this is different. As we talked about in Christianity, we were seeing early on divisions and even separate churches being set up based on what is the scriptures, what belongs in the Bible, and what doesn't. And this is why there is not one version of the Bible that is accepted by Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestants. In Islam, what we would say is that the Quran, which is the Word of God, in which addresses the key issues, the oneness of God, turning away from other gods, turning away from false religion, submission to God, that is the part that is agreed upon by all. And that was preserved exactly. The Hadith, as important as they are in daily life, mostly address questions of behavior. And so there's a lot of controversy about those behaviors, about what's permissible today. But the big issue, the central message of Islam, was preserved. Disputes about wearing a headscarf or a veil or something like that are secondary. Now, if, if you listen to some of the news channels, and even if you listen to disputes within Muslim groups, you listen to someone like ISIS, you might think that those issues were not secondary. And in fact, uh, a group like ISIS is actively out killing people over disputes about those secondary issues. But again, in mainstream Islam, we'd say that's not the key message. The key message about one God was preserved. The rules and regulations about how to live daily life, well, there's a lot of controversy about those. Anyway, as we said, there were six major Hadith collections of the Sunnis, and these are used today. They were compiled in a very short period during the early days of the Abbasid Caliphate. Al-Bukhari's was completed in 870, and the last one, uh, Sunan al-Sughra, was compiled in 915 AD. So we're talking about a period of about 40 years, uh, very short. The largest one is Sahih Muslim. But this contains only 9,200 hadith. So again, remember, even though we're talking about a pool of over 600,000 hadith, the largest collection accepts less than 10,000 of these. Okay, and so that is just to give you an idea of the scale. expect, the Shia would develop their own Hadith collections. Obviously, they weren't going to accept the ones that the Sunni used, particularly because they considered many of the Sahaba and the Tabi'un to be unreliable for the very fact that they supported Abu Bakr and Omar instead of Ali. 
So the Twelver Shia, which is the largest branch in existence today, uses what they call the uh, four books, which are the four major Hadith collections, but there are many others. Of course, Shiism would divide into many different branches after that, and they would all have their own collections. So the logical question at this point is just how different are they? What What is the real effect of these? Other than the difference of opinion they have, of course, over whether the family of Ali should be ruling the community or not. So we can look at some specifics, but remember the basic point here is that most of Islamic law, the specifics, the do's and don'ts, come from the Hadith rather than the Quran. And when we have different hadith collections, then you're going to get very different sets of Islamic law. So we can see that the daily practices of the Sunni and the Shia and of various branches within the Shia differ tremendously, and this is just to be expected. So one that's very popular, and Sunnis love to talk about this, is the concept of temporary marriage, or mutta. Now the Arabic word mutta means pleasure, so you kind of get an idea what we're talking about here. But the main sects of Shiism today allow for temporary marriage of a specified duration. And there is no limit on how long or short that temporary marriage can be. So, for example, uh, you can have a temporary marriage for one day or for one night. In fact, this is a very common period uh, particularly in Iran, in the major Shiite shrine cities, where there are a lot of pilgrims and there are also large seminaries. And so, for the large number of male seminary students who go there, there are actually facilities close to the seminary where they are able to contract these one-day marriages with uh, women who live there. Now, considering that marriage in Islam also involves the groom paying a dowry to the bride. Typically in the West, we think of it the other way around. Uh, but that is part of marriage in Islam. And so that's also happening as part of this. You would not be surprised that most Sunni jurists view this mutta as basically a form of legalized prostitution. And it is not allowed in Sunni Islam. But the question is, why is there a difference? Why is it allowed in one and not in the other? Well, all Islamic scholars agree that temporary marriage, the mutta, did exist during the early days of Islam. And they also agree that the Caliph Umar, the second Caliph, prohibited it. Now, of course, for Sunnis, Umar is one of the most trusted companions of the Prophet and one of the most revered figures. For the Shia, he is an usurper who stole the leadership that belonged to Ali. So, of course, Sunnis want to support the decisions of Omar one of their greatest leaders, and Shia, of course, want to discredit them. So both sides produce hadith to support their claims, sh trying to show, essentially, that Umar either was or was not carrying out the intent of the Prophet. We know that he, as Khalif, prohibited this, but was he actually doing what the Prophet wanted him to do, or was it just a decision of his own? So the uh, famous Sunni collection of Malik ibn Anas, that we discussed, the Muwatta and Sahih al-Bukhari, both cite a hadith that is related by Ali himself, saying that the Prophet prohibited this custom and that's what Omar based this on. 
Now, obviously, Shia, who consider Ali to be their highest authority after the Prophet, are not going to accept this report. So Shia cites several hadith that pass through other Shia authorities, and one of the most popular is the seventh imam, uh, Musa al-Khadim, saying that the Prophet allowed the temporary marriage. So, therefore, they consider Umar's decision to have been his own, and therefore they don't follow it. Now, other branches of Shia, like the Zaydis, uh, which is not as large today as it was, do not accept these particular hadith, and therefore they don't allow the temporary marriage. So you can see that is one example of how practices can differ tremendously based on the hadith, because this is the source that most of the laws are coming from. And I'll just state it again for the last time. I know you're tired of hearing of it. Again, we have over 600 of these hadith being claimed as legitimate by someone, but really no more than 10,000 or so being accepted by any one group. About 16,000 is the most uh, that uh, any of the Shia collections accept, and the Sunnis are much smaller. So you can see why there can be such tremendous differences in practice and these things can become very controversial, even though we have the Quran preserved exactly. Well, that is our introduction to the Hadith, but we're going to see a lot more of this concept as we go on and discuss the history of this golden age of Islam. As you've gathered from this discussion, the people who were putting together the Hadith, who were scholars in it, people like al-Bukhari, were extremely important because they are laying down a foundation of Islamic law. Well, they become very important in Islamic society and politics as well. And we begin to see some tension arise and a sense of conflict is going to develop as the years go on between these experts in the Hadith. And they are known in Arabic as muhadathun. This term is often translated in English as traditionalist. But it doesn't, at least on the surface, mean what we think. And this is because one of the translations for a hadith, I mean, how exactly do we describe this in one word in English, is a tradition of the prophet. In this case, they mean a saying of the prophet. So when we call muhadathun traditionalists, what they are referring to is these are people who are experts in the traditions of the prophet. The second sense of that term as being someone who is steeped in tradition and who defends a traditional point of view also begins to take shape. So at the same time as this empire is beginning to expand into science, into philosophy, and innovation, is becoming ever more important. And the idea of taking philosophies and ideas from India, from Persia, from the Greeks, and combining these, while this is going on in one side, these innovators are going to find themselves brushing up against the traditionalists. And here we mean that in both sense of the word. So that's sort of the religious conservatives who are going to play a role. Well, when we fast forward several centuries, we know who comes out on top in this struggle. But at the time, it was not so clear. And so that's something we're going to continue to talk about as we talk about the development of religion and sciences throughout this golden age. Thank you so much for being with us and for listening to this episode. We really appreciate it, and we hope you'll stick with us in the future. Thanks once again. Ma'asalamah.